This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. probably don't do this enough i mean i know i run my mouth enough but i probably don't thank our sponsors enough I want to once again thank our sponsors mickey fins marlboro pity electric scofields carolina bank uh pepsi of florence we encourage our um our listeners viewers to support our sponsors Th- this will be a bit different today N- normally it's me and my big mouth and these um these perfectly accurate opinions but today it'll be different we've actually got a phone interview with a, a friend of mine, a, a political consultant turned pollster, Robert Cahaley, senior strategist at Trafalgar, agreed to join us. We couldn't work out some of the video components, but um, we felt it's it's very worthy content, very interesting um, content. Robert actually, I mean, it, for for those that don't know, I guess I'll update again. Um, the name of the um, the name of the podcast, No Stoplights, is a reference to um, my once holding office. As a lieutenant governor in South Carolina, uh, everybody had a black suit and a red tie, blue suit and a blue tie. Uh, you try to create contrast. You try to cut through the clutter. I would have been an unconventional candidate. Didn't register to vote. Lost forty. I uh, got elected to county council. I think at the age of forty-six, got elected um, lieutenant governor of South Carolina. But a part of my spiel or shtick, so to speak, was I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. Take what I say with a grain of salt, or for what it's for what it's worth. I, uh, w- one of the things I did that I have no regrets about and one of the best decisions I've ever made in my political life was hiring Robert Cahaley um, to be my consultant and chief, and chief strategist. I felt I was a pretty decent candidate, but I had no understanding at all about campaigning. And I mean, obviously campaign finance was not my, my strong suit, but, uh, but Robert and I, um, you know, got together. He was my chief strategist and consultant. Uh, we argued a lot. We got along some, uh, you can imagine candidate consulted relationships are a bit strained at times, but, uh, but, but Robert built a mousetrap and I guess that's the best way to explain it at Trafalgar in finding the Trump voter. And, and a lot of the science behind it is pretty simple. Trump is a, uh, or was, well, he still is. I mean, he's, he's a unique political candidate. I call him a political unicorn. He's a political blunt instrument. Um, he does things that nobody else can do and, and get away with it. And I'm not saying that's good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, a lot of Americans believe the, the office of the presidency deserves more reverence and, uh, you know, respect. Uh, you, uh, you decide that. That's not for me uh, to make a determination on your behalf. But, but Robert b- began considering whether people were being candid and honest about voting for Trump or not. So Trafalgar and, well, Robert really and truly came up with the strategy or the, uh, I guess, the methodology behind trying to locate the, the Trump voter. And it was, it was kind of posed in this fashion. Don't hold me to this. Kahaley can clean this up uh, if he needs to. But Robert basically asked a likely Republican voter if they were going to vote for Donald Trump or would consider voting for Donald Trump. And the respondent to the question would say, no, of course not. Uh, they're insinuating, I'm above that. I mean, I'm a good and decent moral uh, person. I'm not voting for a crazy person or some outlandish candidate like Donald Trump. And then Robert would ask a follow-up. Well, how about your neighbors? And the respondent would always say, not always, but more times than not say, hell yeah. I mean, both of those are voting for Trump. The guy on my right's got the flag on his boat. The guy on my left's got yard signs. They got a MAGA hat. The damn kids have a MAGA hat. Well, you, you know what that person is saying. They're 
nervous about verbalizing their support of Trump, but their neighbors aren't. So, so are you that different than your neighbor? Of course you aren't. Um, but, but Robert took that mousetrap and built a very lucrative business. And I'm proud of him and happy for him as he partnered with Trafalgar and, uh, and they have become one of the preeminent pollsters in all of America. I think Robert's knowledge and understanding of politics at the grassroots and sophisticated level is elite. I mean, it's as good as it gets when it comes to that. So, so not only do it, he and I have uh, this uh, this past relationship of running in a campaign together, um, him being somewhat of an upstart consultant, me being obviously a novice at running for office, but uh, but out of that came a, a winning a statewide election in South Carolina. I end up with a radio show and a podcast. Robert ends up senior strategist at Trafalgar. And, and as I said, one of the most noted pollsters and strategists in American politics today. And Robert agreed to join us on a phone call uh, this week. And, and we're going to play an excerpt because I think it's, it's more interesting than, uh, I mean, I could give you my take on the presidential cycle and where I think we are today and what I think we need to look for, but it would be, uh, that of an opinion monster. And I think very often you guys deserve someone who makes a living keeping up with what people are thinking, how they may vote, how they may not vote. So, um, so instead of me kind of staring in and out of a camera, uh, shuffling through pages, thanking, thanking sponsors, we're going to spend about the next 20 or so minutes, uh, with Robert Cahaley on the phone and, um, and kind of an excerpt of an interview we did, about the presidential cycle, the state of the Republican Party, what the Democrats are having to say grace over, and we think you'll find it at least as interesting as some of the um, some of the offerings that your humble host makes. So here we go. We've tried to, for the first couple of hours of today's broadcast, analyze where we think we are. Let me, that's unfair. We've analyzed where I think we are in regards to the Republican primary. We've not dedicated enough time to that. We really can truly have chased these other uh, electric vehicles and uh, Ukrainian situation. And obviously the Biden scandal has occupied a lot of our time. I've never covered an issue in 11 years of radio as complicated as the Biden scandal because there's no reporting on it. I mean, there, there's no Wall Street Journal articles or CBS news stories to either affirm or contradict one or the other. But I did feel as we take off the week of four of the July 4th week that let's kind of set the table of where we think we are in regards uh, to the Republican primary, but I'm a non-professional. I mean, I'm a former candidate. I'm not analytically inclined. I'm not statistically inclined. I'm more instinctive in gut. Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar, senior strategist at Trafalgar is um, a professional. He is someone who can, 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 can understand the data in a different way than most of us can. Robert's been kind enough to join us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Good to be here. So, Robert, I'm making an argument, and I want to get your take on this. From what my reviewing of the data, my interpretation of the data, is that Donald Trump can win, but it's far more likely DeSantis does. Is that a fair analysis? DeSantis does win the primary? No, the, the general election. I mean, you know, and I'm calling oh, okay. it. Okay. Well, no, okay, no. Okay. okay, let's back up half step. Right. This is not even a two horse race as we speak. I mean, to me, it's a one and a horse uh, race. I mean, you got Trump, and then you've got DeSantis far behind, and then even further behind than that, you've got 
but but the argument I'm making is Trump is without question the dominant political figure in the Republican primary. But but I see signs that lead me to believe he would struggle in a general. What say you to that? Well, I think we've already seen the left starting to demonstrate how they would attack DeSantis. The left has a real problem with any Republican who rises based on populist messaging. So any Republican who comes up with that messaging is going to be attacked almost as viciously. Now, of the Republicans who would have a chance in the general election, I would say a lot of them have a, a, have a great chance if it's Biden. Um, as a matter of fact, if it's Biden, most of them have an excellent chance of beating Biden. Most every candidate running for president on the Republican side. Now, if they get you know a, t- a ticket a, a little little smoother and a little younger, it, it could get more competitive. But I, I would tell you that as far as the general election goes, I would think that DeSantis would be just as attacked and as as Trump. As a matter of fact, they're beating him up on the. Uh, uh, his signing of a heartbeat bill, making him an extremist on abortion, uh, they would, uh, from what from what's been going on lately, they've been attacking him more abortion than Trump. They've been attacking him on Disney and all the other stuff. So I, I don't know that I would say DeSantis directly would be uh, uh, better than Trump, but I, I think both of them can beat, can win the general election. But as far as if you're just trying to elect a Republican and win the general election, then you probably would be ought to be looking at Tim Scott or a Chris Christie or something. But, but if it's about, you know, which which of the ones who are leading you win the general election, yeah, I would definitely say DeSantis has an advantage over Trump. But the both of them will be attacked the way anybody espousing populist ideology is going to be attacked. Robert, how burdensome is, and this is a kind of a general word, but the, the baggage that Trump brings. I mean, Trump brings a, I mean, he's a political unicorn. We've never seen anybody like him, but he does bring baggage to the equation. How do, how do pollsters and strategists account for the negativity around that baggage Trump brings? And I'm talking about his personality, his bombast, his narcissism. I mean, you know, I know Republican voters who will vote for Trump, but they don't care much for him and they associate his personality with that baggage. How, how big a, a drag is that? Uh, you know, it can be a significant drag, and one of the ways we, we've measured that is by asking people second choices. And uh, one of the things we talked about on the last time I did Bartiromo's morning show on Sunday was the fact that if you tell people, all right, we know what your first choice is, now which, which of the following candidates is your second choice? Even if you don't say Trump's name again, the vast majority of Trump voters say Trump again. And the fact that they say Trump the second time is really strange. I mean, like the list that he met Trump on it, they will interrupt and say, well, no, I want Trump again, you know. And like, no, no, you're supposed to vote somebody different. I don't care. And like they, they will bust the rule of the poll just to say Trump the second time. That is very unique. So I don't think that element of his following is going anywhere. If I think anything, I, I think some of this constant legal stuff is 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 literally giving him strength 
in that it, it's, it's kind of reinforcing his narrative that they'll do anything to keep me out of Washington. And I think there's part of it. Yeah, there's part of it who put this to his personality, but you know he's not. These are these these things aren't happening because of mean tweets. You know, both impeachments had nothing to do with his personality, and uh, I mean, certainly, I would think the only thing that has to do with the personality is probably this crazy lady thinking she can claim that she got raped twenty years ago. That might have to do with something his personality and things he said. But as far as every, all the other stuff that's happening, it, it is literally stuff of people digging into his record and, uh, you know, basically reading things that aren't there. Maybe, listen, we've all heard the phone call in Georgia. That sounds like a guy lightheartedly saying, hey, you find a boat there, girl, which find me 11,000. I mean, it didn't sound like you need to find me 11,000 votes. <laughs> it, it's totally different, but, you know, people can read it as they want. They see all the things that are coming after Trump as nonsense. Uh, now, there's a real question as to what the Presidential Records Act covers, and we see so many different interpretations of it. I, I'd love to get a clear answer, uh, but I don't know that any of us have a clear answer. But uh, so, it, you know, whether that's been violated, I mean, the tape they have is very meaningful depending upon what the Presidential Records Act actually means. Robert, do you expect the Republican primary to tighten up? I mean, I called it a one-and-a-half horse race today. I mean, do you expect us at some point in time before the primary, before people start voting in primaries, for this race to get significantly closer? You know, right now it doesn't seem that way. Um. It doesn't seem that it's uh, it doesn't seem it's headed that way. I think a lot of dynamics will occur around that Republican debate, uh, and by that I mean which Republicans make make the stage. Um, if I had to guess, Trump will say he's not coming as he waits to see who's in it, and then maybe make a game time decision because if Trump decided five minutes before that debate started that he wanted to go, they'd give him a, they'd give him a, they would uh, set up a podium for him because they know the ratings will be incredible if he does come. So I think we're going to see, I don't think we'll see any big shakeup until then because right now in politics, I mean, this is no man's land. Uh, everybody's kind of off and, and by everybody, I mean, a lot of the reporters have taken time off. Uh, you notice you're starting to see a lot of guest hosts on TV. Well, e- even more so in the reporting crowd. So it's just people working skeleton crews right now, and there's just there's there's just not the intense reporting you're going to have uh, probably until mid-August again when this thing all starts getting cranked up, which is right about the time of that debate. So I, I would say it's not going to change much until that debate. And it, it, you know, some of these chairs may shuffle. The only thing I'm seeing really moving right now is uh a Tim Scott Tim Scott appears to be a uh a vote vampire and he is sucking all the votes out of Nikki Haley as fast as he can. I have never seen something happen so fast. So many people who were for Haley have come over to Tim Scott. Uh he started to be uh even with her in some polls, uh but it would not surprise me if Tim Scott has completely surpassed Haley in every poll by the time we get to the summer. 
Robert, interesting doesn't mean win, but Vivek Ramaswamy has made an interesting impact in the Republican primary. Uh, once again, that, that, that says a former politician who finds him interesting. Does that reflect any at all in the data? Absolutely. Look, I mean, the guy was at 1%. And now he's in the conversation with Christy, Haley, and Scott. I, I mean, I, I mean, listen, this guy, I mean, if this guy's the Don Lemon slayer. He's the Chuck Todd slayer. I mean, this guy's not afraid to go on any leftist broadcast. And unlike Tim Scott, you know, who, who made his points on The View, I think Ramaswamy would have probably ended up with one of them having to resign. On the view. I mean, when this guy gets done with you, it's not pretty. Uh, he, he has a very good way of putting people in their place. He is sharp on his feet. And if Ramaswamy is not a big, it, you know, doesn't finish and, and, and make it this time, I mean, I, I don't think he, this guy's going anywhere. And um, he's, he's literally made a name for himself. I mean, if you look back, where it started, I mean, if, 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 this, if this was like high school or college football, this guy gets the most improved award without a doubt. Is our party now, is the party that you and I have kind of, I mean, you grew up more so than I did as an activist and, and, and kind of a worker bee and ends up, you know, on the good side of polling and strategizing and whatnot. Is our party today, uh, is it as simple as describing our party and its evolution today as a pro-worker, anti-war party? Or is that simply a movement within the bigger Republican Party? I would say it's an, our economics are that of pro-work, or of how does it affect pro-worker and how does it affect domestic? So, like, do we like free trade? Yeah. Do we like fair trade? That's what our definition of free trade is. So, it, you know, it, I would say it's a, it's, it's a pro-United States as in what is our, our specific economic and military best interest. So if a conflict is in, like, for example, Taiwan, losing Taiwan to China destroys our economy. There's no question that is in America's best interest. There's no question that is a place where we're having a fight because nobody's getting any new anything if we lose Taiwan right now with a level of chip manufacturing to where it is. Um, uh, some can argue about uh, how that affects in Ukraine. You know, I think the Ukraine uh, we're, we're beating Russia and destroying them for a very for a few pennies on the dollar, what it would cost to do it with our actual military and our, our people. I mean, our military's cost is people, not really weaponry. And, and we don't want to see our kids coming home in body bags. So if we can just spend money over there, but there are certainly Republicans who oppose all of it. Um, but I, I think that it, it is a people's uh, kind of small, I, I wouldn't even say worker. I would just say people who work hard for a living party. So a guy who owns three dry cleaners, he, he's, probably a little, he's probably what some would consider rich, but he works hard every day. He would consider, his Republic, consider himself a Republican. Now, a guy who's the CEO who walks around and, Eats nothing but catered lunches and flies on a private jet. He's rich and he don't work hard every day. <laughs> so, so, so it's an anti-corporatist party. I, I, I would I would describe it as the work. The people who literally come home exhausted. It's it's the party for them. And the party that 
believes we made big mistakes in involving ourselves in foreign conflict that we were potentially misled about American safety and security? Right. And, 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 and the, how we handled them wrong. Explain. Look, what, what do you mean how we look, handled them wrong? What did we learn after World War II? You don't go in and wipe out all the leadership in one of these countries. We didn't do it in Japan. We didn't do it in Germany. After those two conflicts, when, the, when World War II was over, we went through and we figured out which people were absolutely loyal to the, to the Nazis or to the Japanese and filtered them out and which people were just kind of, you know, conscripts signing up to help their country and put them in charge and gave them a sense of self-government back. We went into Iraq and destroyed the Ba'ath Party completely, even though that party was very good at running the government. And we could have said, hey, Saddam's not in charge. We're going to have a democracy, and you know, we're going to pay all you guys to defend it. Instead, we destroy the Ba'ath Party and turn them into the resistance. That is not learning the lessons of World War II that, that, that have delivered such great results. That is literally going backwards in our knowledge. So, Robert, if this is where we are, and I'd be so interested in your take here because you know this world better, far better than I do. If we are a pro-work party and we're somewhat of an anti-interventionist party and, and we're somewhat of an anti-corporatist movement within our party, who pays the bills now? I mean, the Republican historically have raised a lot of money from Big Pharma, corporate America, the military-industrial complex. If we are serious about restoring the party to the people – who foots the bills? Who pays for candidates to win seats? Well, right now, our candidates are being funded uh, by small-dollar contributions and by that level of people who are wealthy who actually earned it. You know, that, that first-generation wealth that built the company. Because there, there, there are a lot of people out there who, who worked very hard to make what turned out to be, a, a, you know, hundreds of millions or a few billion dollars. And those people are the ones funding it and not so much the corporations. I, I want to get your take on this because I don't know anybody other than you that could answer this question. I, I've got a hunch and an instinct and, and my gut says one thing, but, but I've read a lot of polling, some of your information, some of your data uh, collecting that the majority of Republican voters describe themselves as America firsters. Now there would be a variety of, you know, what America first means to you may be a little bit different than what it does to me. But I think yeah. the Republican Party has evolved and transitioned from, from kind of a, a neoconservative movement post-Second World War, you touched on that a few months ago, to this pro-work, non-interventionist party. The majority of voters are there. How many of the influencers, how many of the power brokers are on board? Um, and, and I know you got to be careful there, but but I, I mean, to me, a political no, party really exists funny. to advance I, I, the will no, of, the, of the public. So... so so if we are on board with America first, but the, you know, the, the power brokers and influencers who have historically led the party in one direction aren't, isn't that a conundrum? Well, I, 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 this is something I used in describing how this primary was going in the beginning. I said that you can either be running a primary trying to win donors, or you can be running a primary trying to win voters. Because the voters, the activists and voters who vote in primaries, and this is an important distinction. People keep saying, all right, they'll break down national polls to Republicans and determine, well, that's Republican primary voters. No, it's not. 
the kind of people who bring themselves up for a Republican primary, especially in states where South Carolina, where it's a separate primary from our regular primary, is a very small subset of Republicans. So it's more akin to activists. So the kind of people who vote in these presidential primaries and the average donor to the Republican Party, the average power broker, they're running in opposite directions. And what happens is the power brokers and donors have to get on board with America First candidates who tend to win these nominations, and they get frustrated. And then when a person like that, they're in position to help them, a great example will be a, a master's in Arizona, then the power brokers refuse to help them. And, they, and then they end up blaming them as being bad candidates. When if they had given them the kind of money they gave the other people, you call them senator masters today. So, Robert, if that's the case, I mean, and, and you're, you're, you're agreeing that we're in somewhat of a uh, state of flux in regards to that. Who do we look to? I mean, who who fills that gap? Is it J.D. Vance? You talked about Blake Masters a second ago. I mean, who are the personalities? I mean, I think you and I would agree if Trump wins in 2024 or he doesn't, I mean, we're at the end of the Trump era. Uh, we're not at the end of America first. I think we're at the beginning of America first, but we're at the end of the Trump era. How do we sub- sustain a political movement? In other words, if we believe this evolution is ne- how do we, who comes next? And, and what does it take to continue to develop candidates, win elections, advance an agenda? Well, the single most important thing is to take the leadership or to make the leadership come to your side. Now, the tightness of the of the Republican majority in the House have necessitated that McCarthy become much more of an American firster than he was. And we've seen it. He's done a good job. I mean, he isn't perfect, but that's the, the nature of negotiation. But until you have until you have somebody with some clout who is ready to, to dethrone Mitch McConnell, you aren't going to change the Senate. Uh, because he controls too much of the money. I mean, he spent $250 million last year, and I might say spent it very poorly, um, defending Lisa Murkowski, beating up on Kelly Chewbacca, ignoring um, uh, Bulldog, doing not near what he should have done for Herschel, and um, doing nothing for Masters. And he could have made the difference in all three of those races. Uh, And so... You know, so these guys are running around blaming the candidates when they lose. But if you ended up, I mean, let's say you got in a world where a Josh Hawley or a, or somebody like a J.D. Vance could be the, you know, could be the Senate majority leader, well, then you got a whole new ballgame. Are we close there, Robert? Are we, I mean, are you optimistic that if Vance or Hawley put their name in the hopper, they would get more or less votes than I'd imagine they'd get? Until we start having an open, transparent vote for majority leader in the Senate instead of a secret ballot, there's no telling because all kind of shenanigans are being played. The fact that the most important vote that happens every year in the House of Representatives, we watch play out on national television, and the most important vote that happened in the Senate was behind closed doors is a contrast and is something we ought to be ashamed of. Well said. Last question. I want to take you out of your field of expertise, but but kind of keep in the world of polling and and strategizing. If Joe, 
where do you think this investigation into Hunter Biden leads? Because I've always said, forget Hunter Biden. This is about Joe Biden. What did Joe Biden know? What did Joe Biden do? What did Joe Biden get? Hunter Biden is obviously a troubled man. He just happens to be the son of an American president. But but I want to know more about what Joe Biden's involvement was. How does that affect the presidential election? And do the Democrats have a plan if indeed there is incriminating information involving Joe Biden? Well, I would argue if the Democrats wanted Joe Biden to stay as their nominee, we wouldn't see half the things we're seeing on Joe Biden. I think they told him not to run again. I think that's why that why Rice left the administration right before the announcement. They said, okay, you can do it our way, you can do it the hard way. I think they're part of leaking this stuff uh, and doing it slowly so others, their time can be time built for the inevitability that, that he's not going to be around. And the fact that mainstream media is covering more of Joe's slip-ups, um, I think they'd like to see him out of the way. Uh, and sooner rather than later, their, their problem is Kamala. They have, to, they have to let her be president or to run her because it's her turn. They played identity politics in America for, you know, 40 something years. They can't let it be a black woman's turn and go throw, a, you know, a pretty white man in the, in the job. You can't do it. Their most loyal constituency is black women. They cannot do that to them. So they've got to let her be president sooner rather than later. And if she fails, she fails and go beat her in her primary. Um, so I, I think that, that everybody's moving toward one way or another, whether it's 25th Amendment, whether it's impeachment, whether it's him getting drawn to this and cutting a deal to resign, they need to get him out of the way because they are scared to death that, like I said, any Republican can beat him, including Donald Trump. Who's the most dangerous Democrat out there? Who is the one Democrat that Republicans don't want to run against? John Bell Edwards, the pro-life, pro-gun governor of Louisiana who signed a pro-life bill that doesn't even include exemptions for rape and incest. Interesting. But could he win a primary, Robert, against a Gavin Newsom? I can't even say the word that should precede no. But I'll just say, please, no. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the situation. So, Robert, as we sit, the week before July 4, this is Trump's primary to lose. It is right now. Absolutely. All right, my man. Appreciate your time. Robert Cahaley, senior strategist, Trafalgar, joining us for an extended two-segment bit of Wake Up, Carolina. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it, my man. You might even make me late to the Braves game. You know it's a 12-20, right? Yeah, but the Braves are rolling. <laughs> I think Rev told me 19-4 and four in June. In, in the month of June. Go Braves. That doesn't mean I want to be there for the first inning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. You yeah. don't want to miss the home runs. That, there you go. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> Th- thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. And um, I, mean, I don't think there was any uh, earth-shattering news there. Well, I mean, there might be some earth-shattering news. In, I mean, Robert's plugged in, guys. I mean, I'm not. I don't have any desire to be plugged in. Um, Robert is extremely plugged in, and I think for him to suggest that some of the Democrats are kind of leading the charge now, see, that and was, putting Joe Biden in precarious situations is I very interesting. That's pretty interesting 
earth-shattering news. We all kind of believe that, I think. But I'll say this. I didn't. I, I kind of sort of thought Robert may know the ins and outs of that. I didn't think he would disclose it. I mean, I didn't think he would say that, you know, he believes the demo. I mean, it's a fraternity, guys. And, and, and here's the dirty secret in all of this. There are as many Robert Cahaley's doing the work for the Democrats as there are Robert Cahaley's doing the work for the Republicans. And, um, and you know, Robert has been a, a very strong defender of President Trump. He's been a very trusted advisor to the president. By that, I mean they really um, – I mean, I don't think Robert would mind me saying this. I don't think Robert talks to Trump a lot, but he talks to Jared Kushner a good bit about, you know, what does the polling say. Um, I thought the most interesting part of that, uh, Rev, when asked for your second choice, how many Trump voters said, I don't have one, Trump. Yeah. And he said, no, we need a second choice. Did you not hear me? <laughs> Trump is my first choice, my second choice. And I would imagine if you asked the third choice, he would be my, yeah. my third Trump, choice. Trump or nobody, it sounds and, like. And, and that affirms my concern. And, and I don't know the answer to this. I've said since day one, since Trump rode down the escalator, and it was obvious there was some there there, I said over and over and over again to Republican Party officials, you're making a grave error in believing that the Trump voter is a Republican voter, that there has to be a process in turning these Trump voters into Republican voters, but they're Trump voters. I mean, they're Trump voters. Now, can we encourage those those people who have not been a part of the political you know process and Trump says some things that resonate in their world, they show up, they get a bumper sticker, they go to a rally, they wear the baseball cap. If you asked them to quote the Republican creed, they wouldn't know where to begin and where to end. If you said, what is the Republican orthodoxy? I don't have any idea. I'm a Trump voter. I'm here to vote for Donald Trump. And we've got to some way, somehow convince them that in America today, it's a binary choice. It's a binary choice with Donald Trump. It's going to be a binary choice without Donald Trump. And we need you participating post-Trump. Whether that's 24, whether that's 28, there will be a day that you don't have an option to vote for Donald Trump. Will that Trump voter continue to loyally support an America first Republican Party? That's the, I mean, that's the sales job that has to happen within uh, the grand old party. And that could eventually happen if Trump endorses well, I mean, somebody then, else. And there's got to be, and, and, here's where, and here's where Trump's blind spot concerns me. Trump wants it all. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It doesn't surprise me. I've been around business people my entire life who want everything their way, and they believe they're entitled and deserve to have everything their way. Politics is a negotiation. Politics is diplomatic. It has to be some degree of give and take. And Trump's real damn good at taking, <laughs> but he's not very good at giving. But don't you see a scenario, if he were to win the presidency and fulfill a second term, obviously he can't run again, where he could then set his heir apparent, Ron DeSantis or whoever it is, and then that person would be acceptable to the America First Trump voter I, if and you, the Republican. Here's my prediction. Maybe. If that plays out, and God bless America if it does, if Trump wins in 2024, um, and does a good job in 28, he has an opportunity to say, Hey, here's the person I trust most to carry on the, you know, the American first legacy that we've all been, he'll never say we, he'll say, I, <laughs> you know, have been responsible for here's Don jr. 
Eric, or Ivanka. You take your choice of which one you want. Well, uh, I mean, I mean, that's who the guy is. I mean, his, his greatest strength is his biggest weakness. Newsflash. About 75% of Americans fall in that same exact um, category. Let's take a break. We'll come back on the other side. Got a call. We'll get there. Um, that was kind of interesting, Robert, and um, in two segments. of. And once again, guys, I, I'm an amateur. I mean, I'm pretty good at running for office. Robert is really, really good at the data gathering, the interpretation of the data, and what some of the scuttlebutt is in inside the um the belly of the beast so to speak want to thank our sponsors carolina bank serves communities throughout northeastern south carolina offering a wide range of services to meet every personal or business need from straightforward accounts to complex finances they're prepared to help you reach your financial goals carolina bank banking on tradition since 1936 member fdic scofields ace hardware your one-stop shop for all hardware paint and lawn and garden needs plus all things sporting goods, including firearms, safes, clothing, footwear, and more. Pepsi of Florence represent the entire product line of PepsiCo, one of the world's leading food and beverage companies. Pepsi of Florence also serve brands from other great companies, such as Dr. Pepper, Canada Dry, Lipton Tea, Gatorade, and various regional brands. Mickey Finn's largest South Carolina liquor wholesaler, serving every county in the state, largest bourbon selection statewide. They ship wines to 43 states, opening soon a new beverage warehouse across from Bucky's on I-95 in Florence. They support USC athletics, including williams Bryce and Colonial Life Arena. Marlboro PD Electric Co-op, if you're in big business and looking for an industrial park in the south to build your new plant, consider Marlboro PD Electric Co-op's new PD Commerce Center. Uh, an industrial park located at the I-95 exit in Florence, South Carolina. Check it out at mpdccoop or pdec.com. 